God's wisdom revealed by the Spirit. We do, however, speak a a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgment about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. So we, and uh, by we, I mean people in general, uh, we love the idea of belonging to some kind of uh, elite club. Uh, In fact, many, if not most people, will derive a sense of identity and feelings of self-worth and value from some group that they belong to. So it could be to do with their job. They might think, yep, there's not many people that could do my job. Uh, There's something uh, unique about me. It could be to do with their physical ability. They might think, well, I'm 80 years old and I can still jump around on a trampoline. Not many people can say that. It could be to do with their intellect. They might say, I've got an IQ of 140, that would qualify me for Mensa. Uh, There's uh, definitely something special about me. Of course, there's nothing wrong with having an unusual and challenging job. There's nothing wrong with being active in old age. Uh, There's nothing wrong with having a high IQ. And actually, there's nothing wrong with deriving pleasure and satisfaction from those things. The problem occurs when we start to build our identity around uh, being a member of a select group. So when we build our identity out of some kind of feeling of elitism, feeling of elitism. But the fact is, we quite like to feel that we're a member of an elite group or club, and this is one of the problems that Paul had to address in the Corinthian church. 
distinct groups or factions uh, were forming around different leaders in the church. And these groups were elevating Paul or Apollos or Peter so that they could feel like they were part of um, an elite inner circle within the church. Almost like, yeah, we're the followers of Paul or whoever. Uh, we're the elite group within the church. We're the, uh, we're the best Christians. That was the kind of thing that was going on in the church there. I think um, Groucho Marx had a good perspective on this, and I appreciate it's a bit of a leap to go from the Apostle Paul to Groucho Marx. Uh, but when he was resigning from the Friars Club, he wrote, I don't want to be part of any club that would accept me as one of its members. Well, one of the striking things about Christianity is that anyone can become a member of the body of Christ. Anyone. Because our membership isn't dependent on our qualifications or our achievements or our character or on our good works. Our inclusion is all to do with what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Last week we saw how the Apostle Paul compared uh, human wisdom to the wisdom of God. And, and God's wisdom is most clearly seen in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And today's reading began with Paul saying this. He wrote, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. But the wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age, who, but not, sorry, not of the wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. For Paul, the mature, mature Christians are not people who have been Christians for ages and ages, nor are they people who uh, have got to a certain point in the Christian life. You know, they've reached a little plateau where they're doing pretty well. They're living the life as they should. No, the mature are those who understand that they have not yet arrived and therefore keep pressing forward. Christian maturity is a trajectory and not a destination. And the irony is, as soon as we think that we're mature, we actually then become immature just by that line of thinking. It's often the case that new Christians are the most mature Christians in the church because they understand that they've got to keep moving forward in the Christian life. They understand that they have a long way to go, as we all have. Paul says we speak a message of wisdom among the mature. That is among those who desperately want to hear from God and allow him to change their lives and their characters. We also see that the wisdom spoken by the apostles is very different from anything that the world has to offer. It is not the wisdom of this age, as Paul puts it. That is true now, as as true now as it was 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote this letter. For hundreds of years, philosophers have been confidently asserting that humanity will eventually get its house in order. That given enough time, human reason, wisdom, and ingenuity will be sufficient to solve all the world's problems. That way of thinking took a bit of a knock after the First and Second World Wars. It's very difficult to be optimistic about humanity in the wake of such destructive 
violence and hatred. But it's made a bit of a resurgence, that way of thinking. People genuinely believe, or at least hope, that things will get gradually better. It could be that the war in Ukraine stalls this rosy optimism. But the point is, the wisdom of our age would tell us that we can do just fine without God. However, no amount of human wisdom can deal with the problems of sin and death. Only the cross of Christ can do that. Another feature of the wisdom of our age is we think that morality is making huge strides forwards. In other words, we believe that we're morally superior to our ancestors, uh, even those who are still living, our parents and grandparents. It's what C.S. Lewis termed chronological snobbery. And in some ways, we may be morally superior to our ancestors. Most people in our society would emphatically agree that slavery and child labor are evil and that women should be allowed to vote. You know, it wasn't that long ago in terms of world history that these were controversial subjects. So there has been some remarkable progress, particularly in the last couple of hundred years. But the overall picture is far more complex. And not all changes in the moral zeitgeist of our society uh, are positive. Not all change represents progress. For example, our attitude towards marriage and fidelity has been eroded. Family life in the West is crumbling. And we're much poorer as a result, socially, mentally, uh, spiritually, comes back to the same rosy optimism which says humanity is moving onwards and upwards and we're doing it without God. That is the wisdom of our age. But when we look at what's happening in the world around us, we see that this is demonstrably false because sin keeps rearing its ugly head on the international stage and in our own lives. The cross of Christ might seem foolishness to the world, but it is the only thing that deals with the problem of sin. The world's problems cannot and will not be saved, uh, solved as long as sin is part of the equation. And that is why we need Jesus. That's why we need Jesus. So Paul has again mentioned the wisdom of the world, but he also talks about his, its rulers who are, he says, coming to nothing. We place a lot of emphasis on world leaders and their ability to shape the world that we live in. But world leaders come and go, and history trundles on without them. Leo Tolstoy, in his book War and Peace, made the point that world leaders are not so much shaping events as being swept along by them. Our hope for a better world should not be placed on mere human beings as much as anything because our world leaders do not wield as much power as we sometimes might like to think. And that's actually a very good thing. It's hard to read Paul's reference to uh, rulers without thinking of Ephesians 6 verse 12. It says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In other words, we must understand that the wisdom of the world has been influenced and shaped by these spiritual forces of evil. Jesus has won the ultimate victory, but the world is at this moment still in Satan's grasp. And that means the world is in rebellion against God. The world is opposed to God. And the world's wisdom is intended to obscure God's wisdom and prevent us from seeing who Jesus really is. Paul describes God's wisdom as a mystery. In verse 7 he writes, No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. There was never a point where God didn't know that he was going to create human beings and that they would rebel against him and that they would need to be saved from sin and death, rescued. God has always known this. God has always known this. And his plan was always to send Jesus to die in our place. No one in history predicted this ahead of time. When we read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, we can with uh, hindsight see that the whole thing points to Jesus. But until Jesus actually lived and died and rose from the grave, it was a mystery hidden from every human mind. And even when God showed up in person, even when God showed up in person, the rulers of this world failed to recognize him. They saw Jesus as a threat and they crucified him to go to show how inept human rulers can be. That God turns up in person and they think the best thing to do is to kill him. Nobody saw the Jesus event coming. As Paul writes in verse 9, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no mind has conceived the things God has prepared for those who love him. Whenever this verse is quoted, it's usually in relation to what awaits God's people when Jesus returns at the end of the age. And that's certainly part of it. We can't even begin to imagine what it would be like to live forever with God in a world that's been made perfect. That is beyond our comprehension. But I think the primary meaning of what Paul says here relates to what God has done through Christ. Because in verse 10, he says, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. God became man. He died in our place. And he, he defeated sin and death by rising to new life. No one could have seen this coming. And even now it's happened. No one could make sense of it. No one could believe it were it not for the Holy Spirit opening people's eyes to the spiritual realities of this world. We are not good at reading other people's thoughts. As we discovered with the, with the kids this morning, we can guess, but we're not good at reading other people's thoughts. I expect all of us at some point have said or been told I'm not a mind reader. 
And I think it was my grandma that used to say, a penny for your thoughts. It's the same kind of thing. We can't see what's going on in someone else's mind. How much less are we going to be able to read the mind of God? We cannot know God's thoughts unless he reveals them to us. And we cannot comprehend what God has done for us through Christ without the help of the Holy Spirit. The spirit of the world reveals worldly wisdom, human wisdom. And as we've seen, human wisdom cannot solve the world's problems because there is nothing that we can do about sin and death. And the world's wisdom cannot answer the most important questions about God, life, meaning and purpose and how these things uh, relate to each other. And it cannot reveal the mystery of the cross and what it means for the whole of creation. Those secrets remain hidden from all those who rely exclusively on the world's wisdom. As we saw last week, there are only two kinds of wisdom. There is uh, human wisdom, the world's wisdom, and there is God's wisdom. Those who rely on human wisdom will consider God's wisdom to be foolish because the Holy Spirit hasn't yet opened their eyes to the truth. Dismissing uh, God's wisdom, dismissing the message of the cross as foolishness, has nothing to do with logic or reason or evidence or science. I've had conversations with, with people who consider Christianity to be an outrageous load of nonsense, a mere fairy tale. Uh, but if you ask them, do you believe in aliens? Well, often they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe in aliens. There's got to be something else out there. And then they go into great detail as to why they believe in aliens or conspiracy theories or whatever it is that they believe in. Now, I don't know whether aliens exist or not. If they do, God created them. That's not my concern. But it's interesting that many people would dismiss the cross of Christ as foolishness, but they're quite happy to believe in things like aliens, even though there's not a shred of reliable evidence. The difference, of course, is that aliens don't ask anything of you. You can believe in aliens without changing anything about your life. People reject God because they don't want God interfering with their lives. And this is the problem of sin. This is the problem of sin. Humanity has been created to be dependent on God. And yet human beings kick and scream and fight and do everything they can to be independent of God, anything to keep God out. Even though fullness of life, fullness of life and everlasting life can only come through a relationship with God made possible by the cross of Christ. Paul concludes by saying, but we have the mind of Christ. Through the Holy Spirit, we can know and understand God's great rescue plan for humanity. A plan that has been known by God for all eternity. Kept secret from every human being who came before Christ and hidden from all those who refuse to accept Christ today. If the gospel makes some sense to you, if you feel that you're beginning to understand 
what the cross of Christ might mean for you and for the whole of creation, rejoice. Rejoice. It is the Holy Spirit that has revealed that to you. Maybe you've been a Christian a bit longer and you feel that you've got a good understanding. Again, rejoice. It's the Holy Spirit that has brought you to that understanding. But in either case, we can't afford to be complacent because Christian maturity comes from knowing that we still have a long way to go in our Christian journey. We ought to eagerly desire growth in the Christian life and wholeheartedly, relentlessly pursue Jesus and aim to become more and more like Jesus. Otherwise, like the Corinthians, we can find ourselves going backwards. Or maybe you're thinking, hmm, I'm not there yet. I don't know if I can believe all this stuff. Now, it may be just one person online who's, who's listening online who's thinking that, and to that person I would say, if the Christian message is true, you'd want to know that, wouldn't you? And if the Christian message is true, you'd want to believe it. But it will only make sense if the Holy Spirit reveals it to you. And so I'd encourage you to pray this prayer just to echo it in your heart as I pray it. Heavenly Father, if you're there and all this stuff is true, then I want to know you. And I want you in my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me to see the truth, relevance, and beauty of the gospel. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer in all sincerity, or if you have ever prayed a prayer like that in all sincerity, a prayer that represented a real change of heart and inclining yourself towards God, then God will have made himself known to you and he will continue to make himself known to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're we're thankful that you are not a a far and distant God, unconcerned about the comings and goings of of us, your, your creatures, those you've created. We thank you that you desire us to know you but you won't force your way into our lives. We thank you that you've made yourself known and you've made your wisdom known through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, A a sequence of events that looks like foolishness to the world. We pray that you continue to open our eyes by your Holy Spirit to the spiritual realities of this world. Give us greater understanding and a deeper knowledge of you and a closer communion with you. Help us to put you first in our lives, to prioritize our relationship with you above all else, and to trust you completely. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.